0: Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off-limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick-Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. I'd like to start today's episode with a shout out to one of my listeners from Oregon, Samantha Kinney. Samantha reached out to me because she's a fan of Sex Savvy, and she told me that she was invited to teach a human sexuality course at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon this fall, and she plans to use Sex Savvy podcast as the primary source of her curriculum. She's going to be having her students listen to Sex Savvy each week, a different topic, and then they're going to be discussing the topic and also doing the Sex IQ quizzes, and it sounds like a lot of fun. Samantha, I'm so glad that Sex Savvy inspired you and that you will be using it in your course this fall. Let me know how things turn out. Today's topic is pelvic pain. Now, pelvic pain is something that if you don't have it or know someone who has it, you may not even know that it's a thing. You may not realize that it's a growing, increasingly common and increasingly debilitating uh, health concern throughout the United States and throughout the world. I'm going to be giving you some statistics on pelvic pain, talking to you about different types of pelvic pain, and a little bit about treatments. But today, I'm going to primarily focus on the psychological impact of pelvic pain because, as a mental health provider, that's my role. I'm not a physician, so I don't want to get too bogged down on the medical aspects. I will have an upcoming episode where I talk with a sexual medicine physician about pelvic pain and how to treat it from a hormonal medical perspective. I'm also going to be chatting with two pelvic floor physical therapists. You may not know, but pelvic floor physical therapy is a highly efficacious intervention for pelvic pain, and I'll be talking to two pelvic floor physical therapists in another episode. But let's go ahead and start talking about the psychological and emotional impact of pelvic pain. So imagine not being able to have sex. Seriously, imagine Every time you attempt intercourse, searing, burning, ripping pain shoots through your pelvis. Sometimes you bleed. Sometimes you bleed for days after having some sort of penetrative sex. Sometimes it hurts to go to the bathroom for up to a week. Sometimes it burns when you pee. Your partner's erect penis is perceived as the enemy. As the so-called enemy approaches, you brace yourself and white knuckle it. You avoid dates with your boyfriend because he might expect sex afterwards. You don't snuggle with your husband because he might, God forbid, think you are initiating sexual contact. You wear flannel PJs to bed in the hopes that your husband won't get turned on. Anything you can do to reduce the risk of having to accommodate that enemy. If this sounds familiar, you may be one of millions of women who suffer from chronic pelvic pain called dyspareunia. Dyspareunia is defined as persistent or recurrent genital pain that occurs before, during, or after intercourse. In the newest diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM-5, the diagnosis of dyspareunia was replaced with pelvic pain penetration disorder. Sadly, by the time I meet most of my clients with pelvic pain, they've been seen by three or six or nine doctors who have all told them that the pain is in their head. They've been told you just need to relax, honey, or have a glass of wine. It will help you loosen up. This chronic gaslighting by physicians and often partners that the pain is not real sets women up to question their reality and sometimes even their sanity. The truth? Pelvic pain is a real, diagnosable, treatable medical condition, and the emotional impact is also treatable. Before I move into the psychological and interpersonal consequences of pelvic pain, I just want to give you a little bit of information and some definitions so that you can have a better sense of what I'm talking about. I want to talk to you now about vulvodynia. Vulvodynia, simply put, is chronic vulvar pain without an identifiable cause. The location, consistency, and severity of the pain varies from woman to woman. Some women experience pain in only one area of the vulva, while others experience pain in multiple areas. And there's a technique used in the doctor's office where a physician will take a big Q-tip-type instrument and touch different spots along the vulva like a clock, so 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and then ask a woman to assess her pain level in the different locations. A woman might have pain at 3 and 9, for example, on that vulvar clock. Some women report that the symptoms are burning but some report it as a, a, a ripping or a tearing sensation. And these descriptions vary uh, significantly. One woman reported that the pain felt like someone pouring acid on her skin. Other women have described it to me as like a knife stabbing them. There are two main subtypes of vulvodynia. One is localized and one is generalized. And sometimes they're both occurring at the same time. Most women have pain at only one vulvar site. If the pain is in the vestibule, the tissue surrounding the vaginal opening, the diagnosis is vestibulodynia. And we used to call this vulvar vestibulitis syndrome or VVS. The majority of women with localized vulvodynia have what we call provoked vestibulodynia in which the pain occurs during or after pressure is applied to the vestibule. So there's provoked and unprovoked pain, and provoked pain is when there's something causing pressure or touching the tender area. This can be sexual intercourse, tampon insertion, a gynecologic exam, could be from the speculum, could be from prolonged sitting, or even from wearing uh, fitted or tight underwear or jeans. A less common form of localized vulvodynia known as clitoridinia, which is pain in the clitoris, can be very painful. So the opposite of localized vulvodynia is what we call generalized vulvodynia. And for women with generalized vulvodynia, pain occurs spontaneously without any touch or pressure or stimulation and is relatively constant. But there can be some periods of symptom relief. Activities that apply pressure to the vulva, such as prolonged sitting or sexual intercourse, may also exacerbate symptoms. Since vulvodynia is technically not a gynecological condition, many experts favor a multidisciplinary approach to its management. When I was the director of sexual health at a hospital in Northeast Ohio, I put together a a Team where it was sex therapist, pelvic floor physical therapist, and vulvar specialist. I had an ob who specialized in a vulvar disorders on my team. And it's important to have an interdisciplinary approach when dealing with pelvic pain because we can provide a continuity of care and a comprehensive approach that Without the interdisciplinary team, might leave a woman feeling um, like certain aspects of her condition are not being taken care of. So you're going to want to have a gynecologist or a vulvovaginal specialist, maybe a dermatologist, maybe a neurologist, hopefully a pain management specialist, maybe a urogynecologist, and and especially you're going to want to have a pelvic floor physical therapist. What is often missing from this list is a sex therapist or mental health professional. This particular condition affects women profoundly emotionally in terms of their femininity, their sexual self-esteem, their capacity to engage in sexual relations, their overall well-being. And I often see lists for vulvodynia treatment that don't include a mental health component And I would like to say that I think that is doing a disservice to women and that there should absolutely be an emotional or psychological piece to the team. Sometimes when women have vulvodynia, we will recommend that they discontinue any sort of irritant. We might recommend an oral pain-blocking medication, possibly an older kind of antidepressant called a tricyclic, maybe an SSRI or an anticonvulsant, even sometimes opioids. There are topical medications that we sometimes use, an estrogen or testosterone cream. There's topical anesthetics such as lidocaine and other topical compounded formulations that might include an anticonvulsant and an antidepressant and an anesthetic component as well. We often recommend pelvic floor physical therapy. Some women use nerve blocks. Some women use neurostimulation and spinal infusion pumps. Some women end up having surgery. I've had some patients who had surgery for provoked vestibulodynia, and it was successful. I've also had women undergo surgery, and it made things worse. So there's a lot of things that we can do. And I don't want to spend, as I said, too much time talking about the medical part, but really focus more on the emotional impact of this for a woman and her relationship. Chronic pelvic pain can affect work, school, hobbies, social life, family life, sexual health, relationships, and in extreme cases, even the will to live. I have had women contemplate suicide because they are unable to get relief from their chronic pain. Acute pain is immediate, severe, and short-lived. You break your leg, it hurts a lot, and then you get better. Chronic pain, on the other hand, is always there. It never goes away. Like an albatross on your sexual back, it mocks you day and night. This seemingly never-ending burden can cause anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, chronic fatigue, and as I said, even suicidal thoughts. My patients with chronic pelvic pain describe their bodies as broken, unfeminine, and damaged. They feel betrayed by their bodies. They're keenly aware of the fact that they have to choose between pleasing their partner and dealing with the physical discomfort, which can last for days, or avoiding sexual contact and worrying that their partner may leave them or be unfaithful. Neither option is appealing. They feel like no matter what they choose, someone loses. Either they take one for the team and suffer physically, or they avoid sex and hope their partner will stick around. Although chronic pelvic pain complicates physical and emotional intimacy, it can provide couples with an opportunity to be honest, creative, flexible, and playful. These four traits, honesty, creativity, flexibility, and playfulness, allow couples to overcome even the most shameful and embarrassing situations in the bedroom. A condition like chronic pelvic pain may force a couple to work a little harder to get in the sexual groove, but it is definitely worth it. So she mastered the art of faking orgasm and camouflaged her sounds of pain into sounds of pleasure. As we know, pleasure and pain light up in the same part of the brain when studied in MRI. When someone's having an orgasm, the look on their face is hard to differentiate between pleasure and pain. When my patient screamed out in pain, she hoped he would think she was enjoying herself. Once she sought treatment, I encouraged her to be honest with her husband about her medical condition so he could support her physically and emotionally. Initially, she was resistant, but after a few weeks, she mustered her courage and made a formal disclosure to her husband about her pain. When she told him she had a chronic pain disorder, he said, no shit. She was completely stunned. You knew, she said. Well, it's obvious, he said. Took her a second to process. Then she simply ended the conversation with, You bastard. She could not believe that he knew she was in pain, never mentioned it, and had sex with her anyway. She was absolutely devastated. Here she was, enduring pain so he could have a good time, and he knew all along that it hurt her. In this particular case, my patient was so angry and so hurt that her husband was willing to don't ask and collude in her don't tell, that she felt like she could no longer safely be in a relationship with him and ended up initiating a divorce. Many women worry about the impact that their chronic pelvic pain will have on their relationship. They worry, will my partner leave me? Will I be able to have kids? Women with pelvic pain are keenly aware that ongoing sexual contact is a healthy, appropriate, reasonable expectation in a committed relationship. When women are sexually out of commission, they often feel guilty. My husband deserves to have sex and I can't give him that. How can I expect him to live this way? It's not fair to him. Single women have their own unique worries. They wonder if they will ever find a partner willing to commit to them given their sexual baggage. It will become evident quickly that I can't have normal sex. Maybe I'll just stay single and adopt a baby. Young women with chronic pelvic pain worry if they will ever be able to conceive through traditional means and deliver a baby vaginally. If I can't even get a tampon in there, let alone an erect penis, how can I get a baby out? Some women resent needing to use such interventions as vaginal dilators, which are a set of graduated dilators that can be made from silicone or plastic or metal. And they go from the size of a small pinky to the size of a large erect penis, women are taught to start with the smallest dilator that they can tolerate and then use the increasingly larger dilators as they can tolerate more and more penetration. Women also use Valium suppositories to relax the muscles in their pelvic floor, or they are prescribed pelvic floor physical therapy which i mentioned is highly efficacious but women resent having to use these dilators or valium suppositories or go to a pelvic floor physical therapist they're afraid they'll need to do these things forever to maintain any progress i just want to have sex like a normal person i don't want to prepare 24 hours in advance with dilators and suppositories or Botox injections in my vagina. I just want carefree, pain-free sex. Don't be discouraged. There are many effective treatment options for pelvic pain, and many women do get better. But I must warn you, however, that chronic pelvic pain, even after successful treatment, leaves a complicated legacy in many relationships. The good news is that I've seen transformations occur time and time again in my office, and it can happen for you as well. After treating hundreds of women with pelvic pain, I've identified four common, predictable, what I call traps that couples fall into after dealing with chronic pain. These traps, although common, can be avoided by educating couples in advance or at least educating couples in the throes of these dynamics. Being aware of the potential dynamics make it easier for couples to do damage control if they do find themselves stuck in one or more of these traps. I call the first trap the credibility issue. Because it can take literally years to get a proper diagnosis of pelvic pain By the time a woman finally gets treatment, the couple may be facing mountains of resentment and disappointment. Without realizing that there is a medical problem, a legitimate medical problem, many partners suspect that their girlfriend or wife may have been lying or exaggerating or even faking her pain to avoid sex. Because there is often no visible pathology, it's hard for partners to believe that something is wrong, especially when five doctors said nothing is wrong. This resentment can spill over into other aspects of the relationship, undermining overall positive regard and goodwill. Couples counseling can successfully address this issue. I have seen many couples where the man assumes that the woman is faking because he thinks she doesn't like sex or doesn't like sex with him. And it can be very frustrating for women who indeed have legitimate pain, but are unable to explain it to their partner and d- know that their partner is doubting their pain. And it can cause a lot of of problems. And in spite of education, Even after there's a legitimate, proper medical diagnosis, men sometimes still are stuck in that resentment. I call the second trap throwing the baby out with the bathwater. When sexual intercourse is off the table, couples often end up avoiding all types of intimacy. Because they both know it won't go anywhere, i.e. lead to intercourse, over time, they stop displaying all types of physical affection. They sit on separate sides of the couch, they sleep in separate bedrooms, and they avoid all things sexual. Just because a woman may be temporarily unable to tolerate intercourse, it doesn't mean that all physical touch needs to disappear. In fact, now more than ever is the time to shower each other with sensual touch. Couples need to be creative and intentional about maintaining physical and emotional intimacy when intercourse is not an option. Please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is not an all or nothing situation, or at least it doesn't need to be. Having intercourse off the table can be an opportunity to learn about your partner's sexual fantasies, history, expectations, and preferences. Couples can use this time to grow deeper and being creative about other ways to give and receive pleasure. The third trap is what I call de eroticization After months or years of sexual famine, men may subconsciously de-eroticize or desexualize sexualize or write off their partners in a sexual way. They render them asexual because it is too painful to long for what they know they cannot have. One patient told me, when I allow myself to think of her in that way, I become angry or depressed. It's better to just think of her as my wife and the mother of my children and not my lover. Once you write someone off as a sexual partner, it can be hard to shift back. Emotional intimacy, non-genital pleasuring, and novelty, for example, sharing a new experience or situation with your partner, can kickstart dopamine, the neurochemical that activates libido. This may assist with rekindling sexual energy after a period of extended abstinence. The fourth trap is what I call post-clearance collusion. Because pelvic pain is treatable, many women do get better once they finally receive the proper care. During the initial stage of treatment, there is typically an abstinence period where the couple knows there will be no sex. Once a woman is cleared for sex, many couples spiral downward. Why? Well, there may be years of resentment, years of de erotization and years of avoiding even non-sexual intimacy. Suddenly, the doctor says, you're better, have at it, Many couples do not know how to get back on the sexual horse after being sexually estranged. Because the baby was thrown out with the bathwater, they're not even comfortable being naked in front of each other, let alone having sexual contact. They are sexual strangers. Intimacy becomes awkward and clumsy. We don't even know where to begin. It's been four years since we had sex, one couple told me. All these concerns can evaporate with the proper therapeutic conversations. Simply acknowledging these dynamics can help. Exploring them in depth can take couples to new sexual heights. Couples can overcome these cavernous rifts. If you and your partner are dealing with the psychological legacy of pelvic pain, send me an email or call me. Don't let this complicated legacy rob you of one more day. I can help you find a provider in your area, or I can work with you via my encrypted HIPAA compliant web-based teletherapy platform. Researchers estimate that 12 to 20% of women have chronic pain, but unfortunately, getting proper diagnosis and treatment takes far too long due to doctors' dismissiveness and or lack of advanced diagnostic skills. Here's something that is important to understand. Many women with organic sexual pain appear normal upon visual examination. In other words, there's nothing that looks obvious. The average OB-GYN is not trained to identify these conditions. If you're going to seek a specialist for vulvar pain, make sure you find someone who's trained in this area and has the proper diagnostic equipment such as vulvoscopy, and who specializes in these conditions. Up to 33% of women will have pelvic pain during their lifetime. 10% of visits to gynecologists are for diagnosis and treatment of chronic pelvic pain, but far too many are told there is nothing wrong. 25% of women affected by chronic pelvic pain are bedridden for nearly three days per month. I've treated multiple women who had to go on disability because of their chronic pain. As I mentioned earlier, pelvic floor physical therapy is shown to be effective for reducing chronic pelvic pain, and I look forward to interviewing two pelvic floor physical therapists as well as a sexual medicine physician, as well as a owner of a company that produces vaginal dilators, and she can talk about the role of dilators in treatment of this condition as well. So I hope you learned a little bit about pelvic pain and some of the psychological traps that couples can fall into. Another thing that I didn't talk about today is how women need to reclaim their femininity and sexuality aside from any interpersonal dynamics with their partner. If a woman feels betrayed by her body or broken or unsexual, these notions can be deeply Internalized and really hard to challenge. So, if you're struggling with chronic pain, I would suggest that you seek individual treatment first so you can learn to celebrate your sexuality and your sexual pleasure and gain perspective on that before you involve your partner. If you want to reach out to me to share your story of pelvic pain, You can email me at Kimberly at SexSavvyPodcast.com or call and share your story on my toll-free voice line, 1-844-SEX-SAVVVVV. savvy. you have been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.